Good evening. Good to see you all again. Here we are in another experience. So tonight's talk is called A New Paradigm. And it's about living into your own freedom. And how do we do that? How do we learn how to live into our own freedom? Hopefully you're seeing by now, after long days and practicing for some time, that the direction that we're heading in is actually one of, one of contentment and ease, peace. And the word that I feel is most accurate in my description in a way that I experience is, it, is it's actually all about freedom. It's about how do we become free. And so we oftentimes can associate Dharma practice or certainly Buddhist ideology, philosophy, psychology with uh, sometimes we can feel like there's an overemphasis on suffering. Which is, the goal is to not suffer. Uh, The goal is to free yourself from suffering. But of course, therein lies the paradox as much as there is many paradox in the practice. If you are going to free yourself from suffering, you're going to have to become intimately aware of how it works. You can't have one without the other. And so we start with that idea of like, okay, there's, like I said on the first night, yeah, life is hard. Life is difficult. And we can kind of come to terms with that. We embrace that that truth, that understanding, and say, okay, like, I need to stop fighting. I need to stop pretending that everything's okay. I need to try, I need to stop sweeping everything aside, locking everything in the basement, as I said one time ago, and many people seem to have picked that one up and run with it. <laughs> so kind of sorry about that. <laughs> we have to stop doing that. And then we, we turn towards all of these experiences that are difficult. We start to see where, where our suffering is not, a, it's not a result of the experiences that we've had. It's not the pain itself. It's not the dukkha itself. It's the, the clinging that's the suffering. It's the wanting so badly for things to have been different wanting so badly for things to be different. And this very simple way that I experience craving is just this simple experience of wanting other. Something other than this, man, just something. And then we we see how that works. You've been seeing how that works, probably in strange and magnificent ways. And, and, And then you do these two little, these first two tasks, then you start to experience this nibbana, this ending of that, this contentment, this freedom, this awakening to a, a path, to a practice. And then the goal, of course, is to repeat that over and over and over and over and over again until you no longer need to repeat that. And that's the whole of the Buddhist endeavor right there. And I, I oftentimes like to reflect on the Buddha himself. Because for me, the only way that I can 
I'm not sure what the word is, but I, I'm very skeptical of, of mysticism and religion and things otherworldly then. And I, I wasn't there 200, 2,600 years ago. I'm not really sure what happened, but the only way for me to really buy into much of this is to believe that he was a human being no different than anybody sitting in this room right now. Period. And he grew up in a world probably not much different than ours in the sense of people acting like people. Human behavior hasn't seemed to change much. So he must have been conditioned in some way. So he, like us, would have been subject to his own conditioning. And I believe very strongly that his conditioning would have also influenced the way that he taught. And so what was that conditioning? Well, if we look at the time and the place and the world that he grew up in, it was uh, that of uh, an agricultural time. He grew up in northern India at the bases of the Himalayan mountains near the Ganges River in an area that was an alluvial plain (coughs) that was rich in agriculture and crops. And that was probably the, 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 uh, the economy of the time. And probably with with a, a wealthy farmer's kid, so he would have been very much aware of this idea of cultivation, of that things. I brought a little visual for you tonight. That there's a seed. See the seed, not so attractive, right? Just a little, kind of looks like a piece of nothing. <laughs> I can just like step on it in my shoe and get mad. <laughs> but with the right conditions this seed becomes this delicious grapefruit. Much more attractive, right? The freedom. Now, how does this seed turn into this grapefruit? Well, it has to be cultivated. It has to be planted in the right conditions. It has to be attended to, and it has to be cared for. And it has to be coaxed. It needs care and attention. It needs care and attention. And what have we been cultivating for the last several days? Care and attention. And the, what the Buddha family and the people of his time would have most likely worshipped is the sun. They were called the Sakyans, the Sakyan tribe. And they were sun worshippers. And it's probably safe to say that if he knew things like seed and fruit, he also knew things like sunlight and water. So, how does sunlight affect his conditioning? Well, it probably would have become very apparent to everybody at that time that the sun is what provided the nutrients for the seed to turn into fruit. And what does the sun represent? Two things. It represents light, illumination, the light of wisdom, the light of seeing. You can see in the light. And it also provides warmth, compassion, a caring quality. So these ideas would have been deeply embedded in his mind, in his conditioning. And he would have understood that this is how cultivation occurs in the natural world. Now, if that cultivation process occurs in the natural world, then maybe we could assume that that same process would happen in the internal world, in the mind-heart system. 
And this is really the core of cultivation, is that awareness is a seed, a possibility in the mind that can be cultivated. Kindness is a seed in the mind that can be cultivated. Compassion and forgiveness and appreciation, (coughs) awareness and wisdom. We all have these seeds, but of course, in its first glance, kind of not so attractive. So knowing that you have the seed doesn't do a whole lot. This is not about being smart or being clever or... It's not an intellectual endeavor. It might start with that by understanding some of these ideas and going, okay, that makes sense. But as one of our teachers says, insights are a dime a dozen. It's what you do with them that actually matters. So when we engage in these practices, what we're really engaging in is called bhavana, which is the Pali term for cultivation. The term meditation uh, wasn't used in the earliest Buddhist teachings. That the term meditation comes from very, very later. It's very more European, I believe, and even Greek. And so the translation for Buddhist meditation came more from a Western influence than an Eastern influence. Once they hit the English language, once things hit the English language, they got really kind of, kind of janky. <laughs> We've kind of screwed up a lot of things, I think. Right, so going back to the source, it's bhavana, metta bhavana, the cultivation of kindness. Sati bhavana, the cultivation of awareness, of attention. That these are things that, they're verbal. There's something that you do. There's something that you engage in. And so, you know, the Buddha also said that all of his teachings are ahipasako. The ahipasako means something like, come and see for yourself. Come and have a look. Is this a possibility? Is this doable? And then we engage, or not, in this uh, application of cultivation of these qualities. And one of the things that actually provides me with the most amount of trust and faith and confidence in the practice is actually teaching these retreats. I I have my doubts constantly about many things. And when you sit for days after days, me, me and Cheryl get the great pleasure of watching you, of watching your seeds kind of sprout and take root. And, and it's like it always happens. It's like I've never been on a retreat where that thing didn't actually happen. It's like it's crazy magic. Mm-hmm. And it's been, what, six days? Imagine what you could do in a lifetime. Imagine the potential for freedom that is just right under your nose. So easy to forget. But again, like I read in that Bhikkhu Bodhi passage, once the flame of inquiry is lit, it's really, really hard to blow it out. It's just once that sort of knowing, there's this knowing that happens in practice. We see, we have these Dharma experiences that are really hard to explain. We'll talk about that later on, but you've got to be careful what you tell people out there <laughs> about what happened here. Because you will get looked at cross-eyed. <laughs> yeah. 
And so with this, waking up and cultivation and being able to acknowledge the process from seed to fruit, is what comes with that is this radical yet gradual shift in perspective. A very radical yet gradual <coughs> shift in perspective. And to some degree we start to see that we've got everything backwards. That we've been, we've been looking for happiness and contentment and joy and freedom, whatever you, label you want to put that. We've been looking for that in external objects. Probably painfully aware of the fact that the objects rarely, if not ever, provide the promise that we think that they do. That's a tough give up. But it's actually, it's the experience we're looking for is in this, as it says in the, in the Pali Canon, in this fathom long body. Everything that you need is right here inside your direct experience. And so we kind of do a little bit of a 180. Right? And we come to sort of check that out for ourselves. Is that true? And then we, we always end up back in this paradox. I think it's uh, Chan Buddhism, the Chinese version of Zen, talks about this, um, the great matter of life and death. And that's what we're faced with. And every moment we're confronted with this great matter, this whole business of living and dying. What a mess. What a mess we make of it. Right? I read somewhere that said, this awkward moment between birth and death. <laughs> and here we are, just like getting our way through this awkward moment. Right? And all the unnecessary expectations we put on ourselves. And all of the overlooking of what's right in front of us. Constantly in search for some place or some permanence. As Bhikkhu Bodhi says, looking the three great delusions, the three great aspects of wisdom, seeking permanence in the impermanent, seeking satisfaction in the unsatisfactory, seeking a stable sense of self in the not-self. Wandering and wandering through that. So we have this great paradox of birth and death, life and death, and we also are faced with this duality of of, um, of joy and sorrow. You know that it's not one way or the other; is it? it's both and. And you know, I said this at the, f- the first night because I think one of the things we have to recognize is, again, do not underestimate the value of your own suffering. <coughs> Sometimes I think of the suffering oftentimes as the seed, right? I would never, ever, ever, ever think to come and sit in an empty building on an uncomfortable-ass cushion and look at my breath for seven days if I hadn't already suffered a whole bunch before that. (laughs) If I was just a well-adjusted, go-lucky dude getting through life, I would never come across the 
flyer or the thing on the web that said, seven day compassion and mindfulness, silent retreat. I would be like, that's torture. Why would you torture yourself for seven days on purpose? When you could go to the mall or go on vacation. (laughs) It's the suffering, is the price of admission into this new way of life. So having some gratitude for that. Someone said that in the room earlier today. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm I'm so grateful for my suffering. I totally feel that way. Sometimes I I get kind of crazy out. I'm like, suffering is the best. (laughs) So good. (laughs) Trauma? Oh my God. Made my life so fascinating. All the well-adjusted people out there, I just see them walking. I'm like, I'm so sorry that you are having such a boring existence. <laughs> Everything's just kind of good and going your way. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. <laughs> so, you know, how do we hold that, right? How do we be able to hold that? Because we, we can become so easily collapsed and fall into that suffering. And we can fall into that as being, this is how it is, it's always like this, why is it always like that? So don't underestimate the value of that. That's a valuable asset. That's a valuable thing. That's the, that's the, you know, that's the really hard path we have to go down before we get on the freedom trail. So we start to see that there's, a, there's another way to go about things. And so we sometimes can be helpful, as we see here, to just reflect on your experience and just think about what are some of the things that got you here? How did you get here? And even if that was hardship that got you here, is there any sense of, a, of an appreciation towards that? I'm like, yeah, wow. I'm so glad it was so hard there for a little while. You know, and then being clear, what is it that you're actually looking for? You know? And we have to be clear about that. What is it that we hope to gain? Is freedom not enough? I want freedom and Alexis. Freedom and a house by the beach. That's how I get, I get negotiated. I'm like, I want the freedom? Yeah, I just want like a couple other items. That <laughs> would make the freedom experience so much better. <laughs> Freedom and the drop-down menu. We want to be free. And that looks different, I think, for all of us. This is, again, where I think practice becomes the navigation tool for our our territories. Because I I would say that what, what freedom looks like for me, probably different for everybody here sitting in the room. What is it that we we hope to gain from the practice. What do we hope to gain from this great matter of birth and death? Some of you probably know, in uh, October of last year, I was in a very bad motorcycle accident and almost died. And, uh, and, And actually, in my own mind, died like several times. Like had several experiences, very vivid experiences where I was laying there and I realized that the body was just like my body wasn't going to make it. 
And it was just, I just, hey, it was just time to go. And I, I felt so comforted by that. I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, it's time to go. I was like, I don't feel like I'm done here, but, but I can die. It's, it's okay. And then I would wake up again to some weird psychosis, and this happened several times. And it was so interesting to be so. I'm so grateful for that. I'm so glad that that car hit me. <laughs> I know you're not supposed to say that, but it did something for me that I it either knocked something out of me or knocked something into me. That it really got me back into my priorities and like, what is this life for? If it could just end at any moment. And, and the, the most, and I didn't suffer so much through that experience. The, probably the hardest part was I felt so guilty for the people who cared about me. You know, that I put people through, people had to watch me go through that. And that was the hardest part, actually. Being like my irresponsibility, or, which felt like irresponsibility. You know, riding a motorcycle in Los Angeles seemed like a bad idea. <laughs> you know? And, and I, that was the most suffering I had was I felt really guilty and I felt really um, like some, maybe even some shame that, I, that the people close to me had to go through so much, so much suffering watching me sit there. And I kind of got a free ticket because I don't remember any of it. I mean, I was completely not there for any of that. It's like two weeks of my life, just subtract. No memories. I'm glad I have no memories of it to some degree. You know, and we open up to this idea that maybe there's maybe there's another way. Perhaps there's another way to go about this. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of where we start to just the whole experience, our whole psychological, behavioral, emotional, everything that we do, kind of just starts to make this little shift in a different direction. And we start to question. Actually, I think that. Much of the Buddhist practice and a lot of the ways that I love the way Cheryl teaches about all, all this inquiry. We have to inquire. We have to question these beliefs. Why do I think that? Why do I hold so tightly to these views and to these opinions? I feel like that um, this practice is a is a practice of a subtraction, not addition. What can I what What can I do without in here? Oh, I'll put worrying about stuff too much. I'll let that go. You know, that was the thing that when I finally came to in the hospital and had a couple of weeks to kind of reflect, I was like, man, there's just a lot of shit I'm not doing anymore. And I was like, if people don't like that, they can just not like that. I think it knocked my people-pleasing just out of my system. <laughs> <laughs> I became completely willing and able to feel the discomfort of having to disappoint people because my freedom is the most important thing. You know, this is your Dharma practice. Your freedom practice. And it's so hard in the world because how many times and how often do we betray ourselves because of somebody else's expectations? And how many expectations does the world even put on us? From the family system to our friends, to our peers, to the culture at large. You 
Like I don't feel so apologetic anymore. I'm like, I'm really sorry that I'm that my freedom is getting in the way <laughs> of your happiness. You know, and I'm also so grateful. You know, I feel actually very honored and privileged to even be invited to teach at a place like Lyocitos. You know, looking at the... Um, I've known this place has been here for many years, and, you know, I know that uh, Joseph Goldstein has been here, and Ajahn Sachito has been here, and Stephen Armstrong has been here, and my teacher Stephen Smith has been here, and my, Michelle McDonald Smith has been here. And they only have retreats for half of the year because of the snow. And when... Uh, when I was invited to see if I wanted to teach a retreat here, I was like, wow. I guess this is such a well-tuned room. You know, I guess I knocked on the wall the first night. It's like, there's a lot of Dharma in these logs. You know, and I'm so grateful that I, you know, we, we have these, sometimes people don't talk about it so much, but we have these Dharma transmission moments in our lives. Sometimes they're called Dharma doors. The Buddha says there's 80,000 Dharma doors. Which is great because there's lots of access. <laughs> but it's all about causes and conditions. And I was very, very grateful that I was, the, my flame of inquiry was lit a long, long time ago. I was 19 years old. And I had just suffered my way right into 19. Just slid right through those teen years. Whew. <laughs> the worst. Right? So bad. <laughs> and I, you know, I was so, the conditions of my life, I feel so fortunate because I, I landed, I mean, I literally was on my way to go meet a Dharma teacher because my friend's parents knew of Dharma teachers and thought maybe they could help me. And we were in the IMS parking lot, me and my friend Hanuman and my friend Chandra, just smoking tons of weed. And then we went into Joseph Goldstein's house. <laughs> and I had no idea who or what that meant. And I was just in there. There's a bunch of Dharma teachers there. The three-month retreat at IMS had just ended. And I'm just totally traumatized. Hi. <laughs> but something about being around those kinds of people was very made me feel very relaxed and very at ease. And they were very kind and inviting. They didn't seem to care that I was high, <laughs> although I'm sure they knew. <laughs> and the next morning I met with Stephen Smith, who's taught here many times. And I, it was the first time in my life that I ever sat down with, it, with an adult and I felt like A, an adult was hearing me, and then B, an adult was telling me the truth about life. I mean, I was ready. I was ready to hear the Dharma. And I got two very, very important transmissions that day that have been actually the flame of inquiry that has really not allowed me to collapse into my own suffering. And the first one is the normalizing of the first noble truth. And the way that it was framed to me, because I was in so much suffering, I had so much death and so much loss, seeing people die and just been through like really, really challenging, excruciating Loss through death, through tragic events. And he framed it of like, actually, he framed it in a very positive light. He said, your heart has broken open into wisdom. Because you're seeing clearly now how much pain there is in this world. 
And it's like, yeah, this is how it is. This is real. This is like, you know, so now you can see that, that this is how it is. And then now you have this option. So the, the, the breaking the heart open into freedom and into wisdom. And then deciding from that point on, well, which, if this is how it is, what am I going to do about it? Am I just going to fall back asleep into the culture and hope I can accumulate as much pleasure and avoid as much pain as possible? Then that really, really, in that moment, I had a radical, radical shift in my perspective on things. And then a couple hours later, I met him at the hall, the uh, Insight Meditation Society, Dharma Hall. And we sat on cushions just like this across from each other and he, he gave me mindfulness of breathing instructions. The instructions that I say all the time and take for granted now, you know the instructions. Bring your attention to the sensation of the in-breath. Breathe in. Connect and sustain. When you notice, this is what got me, when you notice that your mind wanders, just recognize that and return your attention back to the in-breath. I remember doing that for minutes. And it just hit me like someone hit me with a two-by-four. I was like, suffering is in my mind. I'm suffering over things that happened eight years ago. I'm suffering over things that happened far in the past. They're not happening right now. But I was so... The suffering and the trauma and all that stuff, it just created this worldview for me that I couldn't... I couldn't not... I couldn't take the sunglasses off. I didn't know that I was wearing sunglasses. And then I was able to put him down for even two or three breaths. And I was like, you mean that, like, that's... He was like, yeah, that's, that's right. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> this is real This is real stuff right here. You know? And so I've had many, I've been, I've been, I feel very fortunate. I've had, a, like, I have, like, lucky dharma. Like, I've gotten really, really great transmissions at really, really great times from really, really great teachers. And that's kind of been my Dharma story. That's kind of been my trajectory. And so that oftentimes when the conditions are right, the heart can break open. And then what we do with that becomes the whole lifestyle that we cultivate. So I was just so ready to hear it. And oftentimes, we end up, I know that some of these, some of you, this is your first retreat, and uh, maybe you didn't know it was a silent retreat or what you were signing up for. <laughs> but maybe you were just ready to hear it. You know, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just this random set of events where you just, for whatever reason, karmically or not, it's just your time. So when we think about what we're doing, is that we're actually waking up. That's what Buddha means. Buddha means awake. The best translation of Buddhism I've ever heard by John Peacock is wake upism. Yeah. <laughs> wake up. Right? We see that we've had it all backwards. And so, what is the experience of being asleep? That's what you're learning about. That's where the clinging is. That's where the greed is. That's where the delusion, the hatred. We fall asleep. How many times have you fallen asleep and waken up in the last seven days? Oh, man. 
Can you count that high? So again, we use this analogy of short moments repeated become continuous. Right? So even this idea of awakening, I would argue that you already have already awakened. But it's this immediate awakening. It's a kind of a very Zen idea. One of the Zen ideas I really like. You have this immediate awakening, this Dharma transmission, a moment that's followed by this gradual cultivation. Someone gives you a seed. Or someone even points out to you that you have the seed in your mind. And that's that sudden awakening. You're like, you mean I could cultivate this? This will become a grapefruit? Yeah, right. This? Grapefruit? No way. Right. But we spend a little time and they say, well, let me, let me check this out for a second. Hearing in the interviews and many of the people that I work with over the years is how much people see the seed of compassion. They go, yeah, right. No way. I mean, I like pay attention and cultivate and take care of the seed and care for it and attend to it. I'll have compassion for my anger, my resentment. No way. One of the reasons why me and Cheryl both share a a very common perspective that it's the attitude of our practice that's so key. It's not so much what we're practicing, but it's how we're practicing. How are we in this sort of slow dharma grind of waking up? How many years have you been asleep? And we can find that, you know, we come to terms with the issue at hand. Gil Franzel has this lovely book called The Issue at Hand, The Great Matter of Birth and Death, The Reality of Joy and Sorrow, however you want to slice it up. And so this is really what I believe happened for the Buddha, which is why he did what he did, is he saw this very clearly. He saw this issue at hand. He saw that there were many people in his time doing spiritual practices and doing concentration practices. The idea of God and religion and meditation was certainly alive at the time of the Buddha. But he wasn't interested in that. He was interested in ending suffering in this very moment. And so he applied his conditioning. And I don't know if he did that, but that's the analogy that makes most sense to me. He recognized that there was a potential within, within and that it just needed to be brought into some type of fruition. And he says that when we get into this, often what's referred to as the dark night of the soul. Right? You know, this experience, I love the dark night of the soul. But we just can't take it anymore. <laughs> Something has got to give. Right? We come up against that. And there's this experience of Sam Vega that the Buddha speaks of. Sam Vega, which translates as something like spiritual urgency. <clears throat> spiritual urgency. That when we get this awakening enough, long enough to see it, we can get this urgency of like, I'm going to practice well with whatever time I have left. I'm going to make the best use of every moment that I can from here on out. people don't like it, that's fine. If I get criticized and judged for it, that's okay. If people think I'm a lunatic, fine. I don't care. 
and it gives us this kind of this spiritual urgency and it gives us the diligence to practice well. I love this term, Samvega. And, and we, we get that too. We get those, you know, you have the really good sit, you have the, a couple sits with a couple walks and you kind of get this. Anybody plan your retreats for next summer yet? <laughs> right? Or maybe you didn't even wait that long. You're like, oh, there's got to be something in the fall. There's got to be something in the fall. Mm-hmm. And then we start to see that this whole dharma thing is not just about sitting quietly on a cushion and watching the breath or hearing sounds. That's the skill that gets us in the building. But we see, in, in, you know, that we have these, again, these, these truths. Of, yeah, life is difficult. You know? My relationship to the fact that life is difficult is where I suffer. If I cling and I grasp and I push away, I am in conflict with reality. And I suffer. I cooperate with reality. I allow, I allow the heart to express its vulnerability and its strength simultaneously. Then what arises is what's called right view, or complete view, which is the first factor of the full path. And what happens in that moment is there's this path that gets illuminated. It's like walking through the woods at dark, and just like the trail just lights up. That's where I'm headed. That's the direction. And so, essentially, the whole of the Buddhist endeavor is to cultivate the Eightfold Path. The path that leads to the end of suffering. And so that's a three, that's, a, that's, a, that's eight things, right? That's a lot. Wait a minute. Eight things now? Get of eight things? But as a system, it's not so complicated. And so we talk about that a lot here. And that it's, just, it, it, it's these three trainings, the three pillars of, of these practices. And the first one begins with sila, which is why we take the precepts when we come into retreat, so that this is a, a safe, stable con- environment. And when we, when we see clearly the suffering that happens in this world, all of the unnecessary suffering that people experience and cause, that can in, inspire an urgency into uh, a life, wanting to live a life of harmlessness. Right. There's so much harm being done, I am not interested in contributing to that. Of course, we have varying degrees of success with that, and that's why it's a practice. We cultivate this sila, which includes generosity. We try to live a life where we're generous with our attention, with our time, with our resources. And it's like trying to get across a river. If we're trying to build a bridge to get across a river, we're trying to cross this river of suffering into this experience of freedom. We need to, have, we need to make sure that that first landing post is really, really solid. And that's sila. That's generosity and kindness and renunciation 
not needing anything extra. And I love this precept on retreat of taking what's freely offered. And that's even part of it is the practice of just like, you know, taking what's freely offered, sinus infection freely offered. (laughs) (laughs) And not getting into the idea, oh, this retreat would have been so much better if I didn't have the sinus infection and the sinus infection ruined my retreating by the suffering, 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 suffering. It's like, no, it's unpleasant. And so we make this firm post to get across. And the next post that we make, it's Sila Samadhi Panya. So it's, it's harmlessness and then it's meditation, cultivation. It's we have to learn how to Meditate. We have to learn how to be with our experience. We have to put effort into it. Cheryl talked about that the other morning, I believe it was. This is not going to happen by itself. The ball is officially in your court. And so we have to establish and develop an appropriate amount of effort. And to guide ourselves back on the right track when we know that we've fallen off and we certainly... And surely will. Just like in here, everything we learn in the cushion is completely movable to our life. Your attention falls off, you redirect it back. Sometimes our seal falls off, sometimes we make mistakes. We're humans. We're not trying to be perfect. We're just trying to be good enough. Right? And so this meditation practice... This, this seal of this goodness, followed by samadhi, concentration, collectedness, which you've gathered so much of. You can even feel it in the room still. So much of cultivating that. That, you, that builds up. Even that, I love the way that Cheryl talks about it, is that it builds momentum, this continuity of mindfulness. It, it builds upon itself. Just like everything builds upon itself. Just like the seed, when properly attended to and cared for, turns into a fruit. That continuity. And then the wisdom comes. We usually get it backwards. We think the wisdom comes first. Now the wisdom comes into our fruition. It, It becomes known as a result of our harmlessness in our practice. We start to see what the issue at hand is, what we can do, what, where we're limited, where we can create positive change in the world. <coughs> and where you can, this is the thing I think that's so beautiful about the Dharma, is you all become seeds for somebody else. You don't know where, you won't know how, you won't know when, and you might not even know if. Because everybody has this deep longing. Maybe not everybody, but I like to think that everybody does. We want to understand our lives. People want to have a meaning and purpose. They have this sort of spark, this seed of Samvega, we could even say, is, is within. And you'll never know, again, how, when, or where you might actually be that person who sort of 
shines the light in, in the skull of the uninstructed worldly. <laughs> and they go, hey man, what you're saying, that makes a lot of sense. Right? And we have, you know, 2,600 years of that. And when I think about the practice, I oftentimes that I reflected on it the first night is that, you know, we, this is not the only retreat going on right now. Uh, there are people doing this probably in many places in the States, around the globe, certainly at monasteries in Asia. And I like to think that in the human evolution that if you followed it back moment to moment, that there has always been at least one mindful breath taken by a human being from now all the way back to the Buddha himself. That somebody somewhere in that long chain that if we look at the human consciousness as one consciousness that for thousands of years somebody somewhere has kept the the spark alive, has kept the flame of inquiry lit. It's just long enough for us, you know, when you light your candle off somebody else's candle, that kind of experience. And that one candle's been burning for a very long time. We get the opportunity. We get that Dharma transmission. Sometimes it just comes from a book or from a friend or some people just, for some crazy reason, end up stumbling into Bayasitos, not knowing what they're doing, a Buddhist biomedication retreat. We're like, cool, I guess this is what we're doing here. Which I love so much that that happens. That's like my favorite thing right now. It's not like walking into the wrong movie, folks. You know, it's not like that. It's like, so seven days, Buddhist meditation, no talking. Like, okay, cool. How hard can it be? Right? I'll never forget that. That's like my, I'm going to beat that story into the ground. <laughs> It's so true, right? (laughs) The annoying thing is that those individuals usually have the best retreat of all because they don't have any expectations. (laughs) Those of us who have sat many times and come into these retreats, dogging it. All those retreats that you get to compare yourself against. It happens to me on retreat. I go on retreat and I have a whole list of things I'm going to work on while I'm on retreat. <laughs> I, have a whole, I have a whole schedule in my mind. It's never, ever accurate. Right. And so this, the, even the seed of wisdom, right, is also seed and fruit. That, the, that, that we have this uh, wisdom that lies within. And once that, once we recognize, once that seed, once that first I remember in kindergarten, you used to always have this plant stuff. and You'd come in the next day and it would be a seed and then there'd be like a little green thing sticking out of it. You ever do that? Same thing. You know? And it's hard to not know that. It's hard to undo that. And so when we go from this seed to fruit, we arrive in sort of, I'm not much of a goal-oriented person, but I think what we're looking for is being able to view experience. If there is a right perspective, a complete view, is that how do we hold life in our experience with, equini- with equanimity? Equanimity, oh, unfortunately, that we don't use that word very often in our lives. It's a Buddhist concept. 
But equanimity is, it translates from this Pali term, upeka, which means there in the middleness. I love that translation. That we're always, you ever feel, I always feel like I'm in the middle of something. Like right now I'm in the middle of birth and death. I'm always in the middle of the past and the future. And I always in my life feel like I'm in the middle. I'm like, oh, I'm in the middle of this training or I'm in the middle of this retreat. I'm always in the middle of something. Mm-hmm. But how am I in the middleness of that? Right? And again, how do we hold this perspective that life is both and? There is suffering, there is tragedy, there is pain, there is loss, there is despair. There is all of those things. There is joy, there is pleasure, there is beauty, there is connection, there is gratitude. That we constantly move through life and we get, because of impermanence, we go through the pleasure pain, we go through the gain and the loss, we go through the praise and the blame. But how are we in those experiences? And this is why we place so much emphasis on the heart. Because the wisdom of knowing is only as valuable as supporting that with the proper attitude. So we learn to try to bring this metta this kind friendliness to all experience. May I be at ease with whatever the conditions are right now, whether they're pleasure or pain. Haven't you seen how many moments of the changing nature of pleasure and pain have you been through in the last seven days? They totally are impermanent. And we try to bring benevolence to all that and that becomes the foundation for the heart. Kindness, friendliness, ease, stability of heart lies in its metta quality. And then as the conditions become more challenging, there's loss, there's pain, there's anguish, then that metta has to call (coughs) compassion in. That's the best we can do. These beautiful spiritual emotions, it's the best we can do. In hardship and loss, in difficulty, suffering, compassion is the best we got to handle that. And it's a beautiful thing. So we want to turn that seed of compassion into the fruit of compassion. And they're both one and the same. It's just how much effort and how much care and attention do we put into that. And likewise, with the <clears throat> excuse me, with the joy and the beauty and the success, as we did earlier today, to cultivate appreciation, enjoyment. You're allowed to enjoy the enjoyable. Enjoy the beautiful sunset. Enjoy the beautiful land here. As Thich Nhat Hanh loves to say, happiness is available. Help yourself to it. <laughs> Take as much as you like. Have at it. And then we come back around into this experience of equanimity and we realize this is how it is. Thank you. But I was going to make it. Almost.
And so as we'll speak about later, as we wrap the retreat up, how do we integrate this stuff? And again, it's these, it's these really these doing these three trainings of trying to live in some degree of harmlessness and cultivating these qualities, practicing the meditation so we can constantly, constantly be monitoring our own system. You can't get by on yesterday's mindfulness. I've tried. You can't do it. I saw, I've seen a lot of other people try. They don't seem to be all that good at it either. Not naming any names. <laughs> and the wisdom we're looking for arises out of that. So we do the best that we can do. And the Buddha always says that the Dharma is good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. And he says it's good in the beginning because in the beginning we just cultivate sila. You can start like, I don't know, like right now. You could just start that. <laughs> just acknowledging harmlessness as a quality that you want to embody. And just that, you know, just this, yeah, I want to be a good person. I want to create positive change in the world. I don't want to add to the suffering that's created in this world. It's good in the beginning. It's good right there. It's good in the middle because we're practicing now. It's good in the middle because we're experiencing the fruits of the harmlessness. And we're appreciating the quality of our awareness. And we're constantly learning how to end ourselves from suffering, so it's good in the middle. And it's good in the end because we start to arrive in the experience of wisdom. And in that wisdom comes this unshakable faith that they speak of often in the tradition. The unshakable faith of mind that cannot be clouded by doubt, that can be, I cannot be talked out of this. And then we have this opportunity to be that flame that lights the candle for somebody else. Or another way that it's put is that after we take refuge for so much of our time, we actually end up becoming a refuge for somebody else. And this kind of cultivation human experience has made its way from 2,600 years ago to, to right now. So we, we get the opportunity to share and to practice in this Dharma experience. And there's, it's always right here, always right now. There's not too, there's no, I'm too late for it. There's no coulda, shoulda, woulda. There's just suffering or not suffering. Freedom or not freedom. It's not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, after all, actually. And I would argue, if, if, if I sat down with everybody here, you would all be able to give me fairly concrete examples of verification of what I just said. So remember that. Cultivate that. And the last thing I want to say before we close for the evening is you might recognize now that your mind is starting to wander off of the retreat. So watch that. Stay here. You still have a whole day. 
Don't give in to the future. There's no such thing. There really isn't, is there? There's no future. Oh, thank God, I can relax now. (laughs) Stay. Don't squander all that you've built up internally. You have many, 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 many more opportunities. Many, many more moments of clear seeing. So use your time wisely. And thank you so much for all your hard work. It's to be able to sit here and witness this is my favorite thing in the world. So deep respect for your practice. So let's just sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.